0: Just last week, we started a new sermon series that's going to carry us through this summer, where we're just looking at some of the different parables that Jesus told while on this earth, this teaching method where he told a story that was meant to have a moral and spiritual meaning. We're going to continue that this morning by looking at Matthew chapter 25. Starting at verse 14 and reading through verse 30 in your pew Bibles, that starts on page number 987. Of course, the words will also be on the screen behind me. Again, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful over a little i will set you over much enter in the joy into the joy of your master he also who had received the one talent came forward saying master i know you to be a hard man reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed so i was afraid So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, those two words, well done. What a joy when you have moment to just reflect on life, to finish a task, and to hear from someone that you respect and appreciate, a teacher, a coach, one of your parents, your boss at work, or your spouse, and you look at what you've achieved and you hear those words of appreciation and admiration Well done. In our parable this morning, two of the servants hear those wonderful words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Imagine what it will be like after a life of struggle or difficulty and hardship, of constant questions, to be able to stand one day before the Lord and have Him say to you, Well done. But now contrast that to the message of the third servant who, after returning the master what he was given to him, he gets the words of both criticism and also the command is given to cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To two, these wonderful words of praise— To the third, this terrible condemnation. The gap couldn't be wider between those two. And so the necessary question that looms over this entire parable before us this morning is, well, what can I do to live in such a way where I will receive the praise? And what would happen if I were to receive that condemnation and why? Well, to answer that most important question, we have to look at this parable, first of all, in the context within which it is set. As Matthew positions this story, it's taking place very near the end of Jesus' life on earth with his disciples. Back in Matthew 21 already, we heard the story of the triumphal entry, Jesus entering into Jerusalem on that last week of his life before going to the cross. And in those few days, and in this time that Matthew has in his book, he tells the stories of how Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is next. To prepare them as best as possible for the understanding of his death that is about to take place. To prepare them for his ascension into heaven and what life will be like as they await his inevitable return. That life that we continue to live to this very day waiting for Christ to come back. And that certainly is the case for chapter 24 which comes right before this chapter obviously in 25. In that chapter Jesus tells about the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. He talks about the return of him one day and the judgment of all things. But he says in all of that, that no one knows the day or the hour. But in that then, in that context, Jesus tells several parables of how we are to live while we await that day of return and that day of judgment. Parables that talk about being diligent in our work. Of always being prepared and ready for the return of Christ and being productive as we await his return and that is the context of the parable of the talent so with that context let's get into the details of the parable and and try to put on our ears that best allow us to hear what that parable would have sounded like to the original audience We are started being introduced with this man who has a plan to go away on a journey. And while he is gone, he is going to entrust his fortune to the care of his servants. And so he divides it up, giving to one servant five talents, giving to another servant two talents, and to a third servant one talent, each according to his ability, it says. Now, the first thing we have to do is understand what is this thing called a talent. That we are talking about here and a talent is a unit of money of finances according to one commentary it was the largest unit of money that would have been known in that era it was normally silver and would have weighed in the equivalent of 75 pounds if a denarius was the typical unit representing one day's worth of labor for the average worker a talent was worth about six thousand denarii, or the rough equivalent of 20 years of work for the average worker. All of which is to say that when the audience, the original audience, heard of this quantity of money being entrusted to the care of these servants, whether it was the one that received five or one, we are talking about a ridiculous amount of money, very generous sums, great value is being entrusted to these servants. And so the master leaves. And while, and we are told that he is gone for a long time, but after that long time, when he returns, even though there were three different servants, there were really only two different responses to the gifts that they were in charge with. The first two put the money to work. And because of this, when the master does eventually return, we get the reports from the first two servants that they were not only able to increase what was given to them, but increase it to the point that each one of them was able to double what had been entrusted to them from five talents to 10 and from two to four. Now notice, this is always the master's money. And when they report back, the master doesn't say, how wonderful, thank you for what is mine, you take the rest. No, he keeps it all, because it was his. Entrusted to their care, and they doubled it, all of it which is given back to the master. But, what they do get is that praise that we spoke of from the start. To both of the first two servants, the master says exactly the same thing in verse 21 and then again in 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And it's saying that same exact thing. It demonstrates it's not about the amount of money that they were able to earn it was about their earning something, They're putting what was entrusted to them to work so that it increased and they were able to return, and that increase to their master. But then we have the third servant, and his report is quite a bit different. And because of this difference, this change in his work and in the response, clearly this becomes the highlight of the parable. This is a parable of a warning to those that might act like this third servant. Instead of reporting about how productive he had been with the talent that was given to the servant, the servant reports no gain at all. He describes his fear of the master. And therefore he took the talent and with great care did what many did in that society of the day and hid it in a secret careful private place so that it would be kept safe from any theft or loss which it was and so with a seeming sense of pride he returns to the master the very talent which with he was given but as we noted from the start instead of receiving praise he receives criticism he is called wicked slothful worthless At different points in the chastisement of the master and ultimately the talent was removed from him and he was sent away. Echoing words that are used in the Bible often to describe hell. And when we look at that we seem like the decision to protect the master's property was was a wise one in many ways. And therefore that judgment seems awfully harsh and cruel. So that leads to a whole lot of questions as we seek to not only understand this parable, but more importantly, seek to hear the warning that it is clearly giving. So let's start to look at that. The, The characters are pretty straightforward. The master is meant to represent God. We, his creatures, are the servants. Christ has left the earth. He will return and ask for an account. But what are these talents? What is this ridiculous amount of money supposed to represent? What has God entrusted to us that is so very valuable? And in asking that question, it leads to the obvious next one, which is in whatever this thing is, how are we supposed to be productive with it? What would it look like to invest and allow it to grow or to double using the metaphor of the parable? And conversely, what would it also look like to hide it away and do nothing with it at all? And in answering those questions, noting the context of discussions around the return of Christ and the eternal judgment that will await after people do give an account for whatever it was that they were given and entrusted to them, well, we have to ask in that application... Is this suggesting a a works righteousness? That our judging by God will ultimately be done on how good of a person we were, how productive we were. And if we can prove our worth to God, then he will welcome us into glory. But if we fail, well, then we will be dismissed to hell. Those are really important questions that need attention, especially Again, if we want to avoid the fate of that last servant. So let's start by trying to answer those questions as we move toward the application. The first question was, well, what is this talent? What is this incredible amount of money supposed to represent? And for most of us, we would likely say, having read this before, that that talents are the gifts that God has given to us. The gift of intellect, our athletic ability. Our good business sense, our wisdom, our hospitality, our love and ability to care for children, our senses of humor, whatever it is that we are gifted with. And at least one commentary that I read suggested that this parable is where we get the English word to describe those gifts, talents, from. Because of this parable, we look at someone and they say, boy, they are talented musically. They are talented intellectually. They are talented in particular areas. And so that's not a wrong interpretation. But as I read through and studied this task, I think, text, I think this might be limiting. In fact, I think that the great gift that God has given to all of us is likely life itself this would include the talents that he has blessed us with but it would also include the place and the time where we were called to live it would include each one of the days that god has blessed us with on this earth that he has called us to live and to move and has blessed us with life life itself is a gift Our abilities are a gift. Our wealth is a gift. Everything that we have and everything that we are is a gift entrusted to us by God. For everyone, no matter how talented they feel in different areas, God has given you this life, this part of the world, and he has entrusted it to us all. And the greatest gift, that God has given to us in Jesus Christ is the gift of salvation and forgiveness of our sins. None of our existence would have any meaning or value whatsoever apart from the work of grace in Jesus Christ. It is only when we accept his grace and his mercy that we are able to live the lives that we were created to live from the very beginning, lives that are free from sin and free to serve and to bless. And so, if that is true, then how do we invest our lives? What would that look like? Well, in order to live life well, again, first of all, we have to recognize that we are not our own, that our very life is that gift from God. He has blessed us with it, and He will call us to give an account for it. It is His not ours, everything that we have. And so while we await that return of the Lord for that accounting of what we've done with the lives that we have been given, instead of living for our own glory and celebrating ourselves with our talents and our gifts, we take what he has entrusted to us and give glory to him. We use our lives to bless the Lord, to do as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To point people toward him, to shine his light in this dark world and encourage others to know and to walk with the Lord. That is what using and growing the gift of our lives would look like. But again... The focus of this parable seems to be on the negative, and it is the warning of the one that simply hides what he has been entrusted with. And in order to understand what that would look like, I think we have to first of all understand the motivation with which that third servant acted. When he is called to an account for what he has been given, the servant explains in verses 24 and 25, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. The servant suggests that his actions, his decisions, were motivate, motivated by fear of the master. And as we await for the return of Christ, for that day that will come when we face his final judgment, many live in fear of God. And the biggest worry they have while living on this earth is, what will God do to me for the sins that I have committed? What will happen to my soul and how can I fix that and make sure that I am okay? And in a lot of ways, that's exactly how the Pharisees of Jesus' day thought about life. In fear of God, their lives were centered around the fact that they were trying to save themselves. Their assumption being that, again, in fear of the Lord, if they just woke up every single day and said, Okay, how can I make sure to not anger God? To not do something that will be wrong according to his commandments. If as long as I don't make God angry, then by default, I'm going to make him happy. But over generations of thinking in this way, they had created an insular group of people that just focused on making sure that no one was making God mad. People that were so careful about each portion of the law and so critical of anyone, including Jesus, that they thought had overstepped the bounds of that law, that they were ready to slam down a burden upon them and instill in them that fear of God. And in their self-righteous attempts to save themselves from God, they didn't live. They didn't serve. They didn't share the joy of God with anyone that wasn't in the right lineage. In thinking that life was just about keeping the rules and not making God angry and assuming that they were living a good life as a result, they ended up just hiding all of what God had given to them. Sure, they had kept some rules, but that wasn't the point of the life that God had given to them. That was a way to waste, to hide the gift that God had given to them. And that's what it means to hide our talents as well. There's an awful lot of ways to waste a life that God has given to you. To just live out the days that you have, doing little to nothing with them of value to anybody, except maybe yourself. We waste our life when we indulge in sin. When we intentionally and willfully disobey God's commands for our lives and we use it for our own pleasure or our own gain. We waste life, wasting it day after day, hour after hour, watching TV or scrolling from website to website just to see what's going on in the world. We waste our lives when we indulge in hobbies that are good, but then we use that for our own praise and glory or never share those hobbies with anyone else. But the particular concern of this parable is those that waste their lives because they are living to try to save themselves. Where in the fear of God, they do nothing with their life that they have been given Only living to not make God angry. Laying down their head and saying, look at me, I did it. Another day where I kept these commandments, God, I must be doing something right for you. I avoided any sin, any struggles. And while we affirm the grace of God, we probably are more susceptible to doing that than we often want to think. As we await the return of Christ, we use our theology rightly to understand that God is the one who saves all by his eternal decree. We have no power in our own to save either ourselves nor anybody else. As we said last week, all we can do is save, is sow the seeds. And then we know the comfort of belonging to God and therefore... We figure, well, we are all set. Our lives are taken care of. And so basically the assumption is we are just waiting out the clock. We'll just do our time here on earth until the days are expired. Then we will go to heaven where we can actually enjoy and live in the right relationship with God. But again, that is a narrow-minded and simple response to grace. It ignores what God has given to you here and now and the life that he has called you to live and invited you to live in response to his grace. When we realize that we cannot save ourselves and that Jesus has given us the gift of grace, it frees us to live for him, to celebrate the life that he has given to us and to live for the glory of God, not our own glory or out of fear. Now, be careful. Don't here what I am saying. I am not saying go live in sin without fear of those consequences. Don't be afraid to disobey God. That's what we're supposed to do. No, the only way that you can live a glorious God-honoring life is in conformity to his law. That's the very purpose why he has given it to us. But there is a huge difference if our motivation for obeying the law is for our self-justification versus a motivation for obeying the law to glorify and honor the God who has redeemed you and blessed you and given you this life. It's not so you can pat yourself on the back in the end and say, look how good I was and what I did Instead, it is to say, my God is so good because of his grace. May he be praised, honored, and glorified with all that I am and all that I have. God in Christ has given you the gift of today, the gift of life. He has blessed each and every one of you with different talents, skills, spiritual gifts, and riches, quite frankly, beyond many people's imaginations. And above it all, he has offered us forgiveness and grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of that has been entrusted to you. What are you going to do with it? We can, in fear, just live out our days hoping to make it to heaven where things will be better and different, hiding away and wasting the life that God has given to you. Or, as we eagerly await the return of Christ, we can live. We can take all that we are and all that we have and offer them back to God, living for his glory, serving him with joy, sharing his light, his love with others. When we do that, We won't be saving ourselves. That's out of our ability and our control. But what we will do is to be able to live a blessed life and then through the grace of Christ be welcomed into his glory where he will look at the way that you took the time that he gave to you to honor him and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the many rich gifts you have entrusted to us. The gift of life, the ability to have days where we are able to enjoy your creation, to work with our bodies, to use our gifts and talents, and to be able to experience the joys of relationship, of fellowship, and worship. And above all, we thank you for the gift of grace. How in destroying our lives in our sin, you through your Son bore the burden and guilt of that sin, not only freeing us from the ultimate consequence, but freeing us to live as we were meant to live from the very beginning. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we have used our talents and our gifts to glorify you. I mean, glorify ourselves rather than you. Forgive us for wasting so many of our days in pointless activity. Forgive us for trying to praise and bring glory for ourselves instead of shining your light in this world. And Lord, call us to be productive to take what we have in order to bless you, to serve you, and that every day of our lives might be done to your name's honor and glory, so that in the end, we might delight in your joy. We might not only celebrate your pride, but even have a pride in what you have allowed us to do through your spirit and your grace. So use us, O Lord, we pray. And in the end, may we return to you not only what you've given to us, but abundantly more. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.